This presentation is from Design Research 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. You can come up. I was just making sure you're right to come up. <laughs> so this is Penny Hagen. Uh, she has tons and tons and tons of uh, research experience <laughs> and a crackly microphone. Um, uh, and she's spoken at many of our, uh, our events and we're really glad to have her here. Thank you. Awesome. I'm scared I'm going to fall off there, so I'm just going to stand on my tiptoes so you guys can see me. Still can't see. <laughs> awesome. So kia ora koutou katoa. My name is Penny Hagen. I'm from Aotearoa, New Zealand, but I spent lots of time here in Sydney, so I'm really pleased to be back sharing with you guys. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional custodians of this land, um, and paying my respects to elders past, present and future. We're right. <laughs> cool. I'm rustling a little bit, so I'm going to try and stay still. Awesome. So for the last sort of 15 or 20 years, I've been working with a range of different organisations, supporting them to design new products, services, strategies, policy, and using a co-design or participatory design approach. So invo involving the people who are impacted by those things in the design process. And in the last sort of five years, that's shifted a lot from being product and service specific to being more about large, complex social issues. So youth unemployment, homelessness, family violence, topics like that that are big, they're complex, and it's not that we're trying to look for a specific single service that's going to resolve any of that, but we are taking the design process, design research mindsets and tools into those spaces and seeing what can they do for helping to untangle disrupt, build new capabilities, um, change the way the system's operating now. So I'm going to share some observations about what it's been like to transition uh, design research sort of conventions that we might traditionally have used, and it depends on what your background is as to what you think traditional and conventional is, um, but we can unpack that at lunchtime. Um, but what are some of the shifts and differences I've seen about um, co-opting design into those spaces? The first thing I'm going to do is just introduce you to three different um, sort of initiatives or contexts where design is being invited in and we can kind of examine why that is and what, what it means to use design in those contexts. So the first one is a project, it's an ongoing collaboration called Working Together to Achieve Whānau Wellbeing in Waitemata, Whānau being family, extended family, and Waitemata being a region in Auckland. Um, and the nexus of this initiative is in this image that was sketched very early on, and it asks the question, what is the latent potential of a community system to prevent violence? What that means is, within communities, there's strengths and assets and amazing things already happening. How can we grow those, utilise those, build on those to prevent violence from ever happening? So what are the social connectedness, the different ways of operating and connecting with others that can actually stop violence from occurring? So in a public health context, that's primary prevention. And we're really familiar with early intervention and crisis intervention where things have already happened and we think, what can I do? Or things have gotten to really awful outcomes and we need to respond in a crisis mode. So primary prevention is the stuff right back at the beginning, the positive, awesome things that we can do to mean that we don't have to go into those places. So this was a collaboration between the Ministry of Social Development, Central Government, 
local government and then local family violence networks who are in specific suburbs in the Waitamata and they're responsible for connecting together NGOs and community providers that work with people who are needing support around um, sexual or family violence or any kind of violence. So this is place-based but connected to central government policy. But the work was happening within these specific, three specific communities within Waitamata and grounded in the strengths and context of those communities. So some of the things that we have to take into account from a design research perspective are that the team is temporary. We've brought them together in a temporary way, but they need to be able to go on with this work when that temporary structure um, changes. The team conducts the research themselves, and this is true of all this work in this context. The frontline workers, the NGO workers, the government workers are doing the research, they're gathering the data, they're developing the insights themselves. Primary prevention is fuzzy, it's a new territory, it, it's the stuff like um, having barbecues with each other and knowing your neighbours and things like that, that don't have anything to do with what we would associate violence prevention to do with. So it's a fuzzy area, it's not something that comes as easily to mind for us, even though it's actually the stuff that we really like to do. There's no single owner of a challenge like this. If we want to get any kind of action or change, it's multiple people that are involved in actioning and taking things up and bringing that change to bear. And working with teams like this, they're action-orientated teams. They're used to responding to things and improving people's lives and taking action. So insights isn't enough. We have to be actually making change. So a second example of where design again, the type of place where design is being invited, and for some, of the, for some of you this stuff's going to be probably pretty familiar. This is a Healthy Families, which is an initiative from our central health agency. It's a rip-off of something that happened in Victoria here in Australia. We took some of the bits and not all of the bits. Ten locations across New Zealand where there's existing disparities in health outcomes. So they're going to be locations that have complex social dynamics happening there. And again, a place-based response. So those teams that are in those 10 places are working directly with those communities. They come from those communities, and the approach to change depends on what's happening in those communities. And their goal is to improve health outcomes. <laughs> have a little um, sidekick here. Um, their goal is to improve health outcomes just like other programs. We want to reduce obesity, reduce smoking, reduce um, alcohol abuse, increase phys physical activity, all those things. But we don't want to do that through delivering programs. We want to do that through disrupting the status quo, mapping the system and understanding what the challenges are that tie people into those outcomes right now. So that includes things like looking at the food system. Why is it that in some suburbs there's access to healthy food and in others all you can get is um, low-quality takeaway food? So it makes it very hard to actually access food. What, what is that happening in the system that's causing that? Why is it that in some places there might be plenty of outdoor space for physical exercise, but people are too scared to walk to school or walk to work? What's going on systemically that retains the status quo in those communities? So these projects are about disrupting those um, and looking for ways to build new capabilities and do things differently. So some of the context from a sort of design research point of view. The teams are local. They live and work in these communities, and they're the people doing the research, the insights, the data gathering. Many of these communities have consultation fatigue. They've been done to, and they've had a lot of people come through and ask for stuff, and not so much come out the other end as a result. It's a whole of system scale. So you're looking at all the different things that are going on. There's no way you could do a design research project for every single part of the system. It would take you all of the four years and more, and you'll have finished your funding and nothing will have been done, because you'd have been busy doing insights on every part of the system. So we have to be much more strategic about how we distribute that way of working and the value that design might bring. 
The workforce needs to enable, not to do. So we're not in there to deliver the services. We're in there to understand how can we partner, create the capability, activate change across the community and different governance levels um, to make that happen. It's, there's no way that there could be a workforce big enough to deliver all this work. It needs to be about partnering and collaborating. So all those things influence how design might be applied. The third one, if you can imagine, some of you may have experienced this, living on the streets and not having access to toilets, showers, or anywhere to store your gear safely. So this project is a cross-council project looking at how we can provide better access for people experiencing homelessness to safely store their belongings, to access showers, maintain health and hygiene. Again, the team internally are doing the work. They're the ones out there engaging with people, having the conversations. Um, and some of the other things that sit around this are, again, lots of existing research. We know a lot, actually, already about what it's like to experience homelessness, why people end up there, why they might have to stay there, and what that experience is like. Multiple owners and decision-makers. Sounds simple, a toilet, a locker block, but many, many, many people have a role in deciding how public spaces inside cities are used and played, and it's a very political decision-making process. There's a lot of different things going on internally in a council structure. It goes across all sorts of things. Assets, governance, maintenance, cleaning. There's lots and lots of people involved. Parks, streets, wrecks, lots of players. Um, there's no process for how you bring all those things together, and that includes external governance bodies and influences across the city as well. So there's a lot of different voices, businesses, um, other members of the public, and so on. And of course, just to say emotional topic is actually a, it's a radical understatement, because there's two things at least going on here. One is public toilets. We don't like talking about that stuff. Apparently none of us go to the toilet ever. <laughs> just doesn't come up. It's not something that we engage with. Public amenities like this are associated, largely speaking, not always, we've got beautiful examples like the Hundavasa toilets, but largely speaking, public amenities are associated with antisocial behaviour, graffiti, drug taking, it's, it's sort of a whole thing of uh-oh, all the stuff that could go wrong. Alongside that rough sleeping, again, people experiencing homelessness also raises a whole lot of different reactions and emotions and judgments and feelings about how people should be provided for. So it's a very intense landscape, if you like, in terms of social change or social innovation. So those are three examples of the kinds of places where design and design research is sort of being invited and co-opted in to try and tackle some of those dynamics. Why are they doing that? Why are those groups of people in different sectors excited about what design can bring and what design can offer? All the reasons probably that, that we enjoy it. It's human-centred, so if you come from a community development background, for example, um, it's people-focused. We like that. We like that it's about humans. It's not so much about sort of boxes and arrows. It allows us to unpack and reframe. So that thing about creating space for innovation, because you've stepped back and looked at something in a completely new way, is really important and useful in these contexts. It's multidisciplinary. We're very open as designers. Bring it all in, all the kinds of evidence, all the perspectives, all the different things. We like that. That's great. That works really well in this kind of complex space. The focus on behaviour, so it gets us to why, looking underneath things. New tools, so if, again, if you come from an engagement background, prototyping and different creative tools that we have in design are really useful to add to the basket of stuff you already had. And it gives us big picture and detail. So that, again, is really useful in systemic um, challenges when you're looking at the big system, but you're also relating that specifically to experiences of real people on the ground. So all these things are really useful in these kinds of complex social contexts.
But all those things need to inform real change. The design research effort that's undertaken has to move towards action. It can't just be sitting with insights and learning. So social change, social um, innovation is an implementation game. It's about doing an action and having change. we're, We're asking success is not, do we have some good proposals for how things might be different? That's important, but it's not the, it's not the end. Success is, is there less people experiencing violence? Is there more people in the community feeling connected and engaged and able to participate? Um, has smoking rates dropped? Is anybody better off? And if so, how? Those are the questions that we're asking that tell us whether or not we've made a difference. So the objective isn't research and insight and knowledge, that's really important, but the objective is change. Have we got to the outcomes that we're trying to achieve? Are things different for people? So the the horizon line that we're looking for is that kind of success. And here's a little bit of tension with with how the design process is largely conceptualised. And and I know um, there's lots of different ways to visualise design. The double diamond is just a very common one. It's also under fire at the moment, along with all the other sort of waterfall models of design. And that's a good discussion to be having. But typically, conventionally, what I see is that we imagine change just flows off the end of the design process magically somehow. So after all the design decisions are made, and of course I'm generalising a little bit, but after all the design decisions are made, this sort of thing happens. We get to implementation and delivery right at the end. We start thinking about this stuff. Um, And that's problematic for a couple of reasons in this context. It's problematic generally, but partly because it's really risky to do it this way. By the time we've done the explore or the discovery or the empathy or whatever you want to call that upfront design research bit, oftentimes people are exhausted. They've got what Chris Vanstone calls insights bulge. You've just got so much knowledge, you've kind of run out of money or time or energy to do anything with it, and you kind of get stuck there. So there's a lot of examples of where great upfront stuff has happened in learning, but we've sort of lost traction. Has anything come out of it afterwards? And that's risky in this context. There's also no discrete set of decision makers sitting waiting for you to bring all your findings and going, yes, great, go create systemic change. We'll do that tomorrow. The kind of change and shifts that we're talking about belong across different players from community members, local governance, um, other community stakeholders, and you need to be engaging those people all the way through. It's not like we can get them all together in a room, like a stage gate process, like we might be able to when it's a discrete organisational decision to shift a service angle or something like that. That sort of coming together as a collective in a single moment doesn't occur. The closest thing that we have is an election. Um, And as we know, that doesn't get very specific. So... We need to be bringing the conditions for change in those conversations much further forward because there isn't a way to kind of have it all happen together. So I think um, what that means is that in these contexts, design is really being asked to extend its remit and and design research is being asked to extend into the change process past past the end of that sort of magic bit where we give our proposals into the actual doing, but also to bring the change process forward into the front piece as well. So you can think about it like, instead of saying, that's the future there that we're sort of heading towards, how do we bring the future here? How do we start to bring it forward into the start of that process? So in that way, design becomes part of the change process itself. Design research becomes part of the change process, not just process that informs future decision-making about change. So if that's true, how do we do that? What might look different? So I'm just going to share some observations of the sort of shifts if you're leaning into that kind of change space with that as your horizon and that as your sort of focus and priority across three things who we engage with how we engage 
um, why we do it, what we're sort of trying to achieve out of it in those early parts of the design process, and what success looks like. So who we engage with. Typically, and again, I'm sort of making generalisations, we get our research plan together and we think... And we think deeply, who do we need to talk to to understand this experience? What different perspectives do we need um, how, to learn about what's going on now, but also to think about changing things for the future? So we might need some of these kinds of people and some of those kinds of people and people that share these experiences and perspectives, and we kind of arrange our idea of sort of a recruitment plan of the voices that we need to hear. And, of course, we're always constrained with time and budget about how many people we can speak to, etc. So what's different when we're kind of leaning into that change space? The first thing is that we're not working with representative users. We're not working with people who represent people like teenage mums or people who represent people like middle-income something-something. We're working with the specific people who will actually enact or experience the change. So it's place-based. It's the school across the road. That specific school, those specific young people, that marae up the road, that community group there that does the painting and the arts. So you're working not with representative users but with the actual, with real-life actual people, <laughs> if you get what I mean. Um, and we do definitely want learning. We want to understand what people's experiences are, what's going on for them. But we also want to mobilise. We want to be thinking about making change. Who will we work with that will take this forward? Who, where is the kind of willing coalition to take action? And who are the influencers? Who could block or enable this up and down, not just users and citizens and community members, but governance, executives, boards, across those things? Who's going to be the people that need to be shifting? So it looks a little bit more like this. You're looking for change agents, you're looking for influencers and influencing institutions, and that's who you're going to connect with. In that, that uh, example of the Wellbeing and Waitamata project, the family violence project, we were definitely looking for different experiences. We talked to different um, young people, to older people, to different cultural groups, all sorts of different people, but we were also looking for mobilisers. We were looking for people that were already active in the community, they already had groups running, that already demonstrated that they were behind an energy to grow a better community. So it's a shift, if you sort of think about it, from an emphasis on learning from a diverse representation of potential users to inform the future, which is sort of how I would have conceptualised it before, to building connections with influencers and change agents who will actually enable the change. That's who we're thinking about wanting to connect with. So then how, what about how we engage? So we sort of have a different sense of who we might talk to, but what about how? So again, quite often like, we think about our methods, we think about, or oh, we'll do some interviews, we'll do some workshops, we think what are the different methods that are going to work here? And we think about our data gathering processes and our recruitment, etc. So again, in, the, in some of these other contexts, all that planning is still true, but you're taking into account some of those things like there's a huge history of being done to and consultation fatigue, which means people may not have any interest in engaging with us whatsoever. So we may need to, or very often we're drawing on the trust and the networks of the teams that live locally to say to people, this is worth investing in, you should come with us and build some trust and some confidence that it's worth actually participating. So we're leaning on those personal networks and that means there's a greater responsibility and obligation from the team on how this, this goes because they're drawing in people that they're connected to and it's their community. They have to be culturally appropriate and that's in the broad, culture in the broadest possible sense. 
um, we have to be thinking about people, may, the word interview is actually a no-go in lots of places. People don't want to be interviewed and they don't want to conduct an interview. They want to have a conversation, a kōrero, dutala noa, so something that is culturally appropriate or feels like, yeah, you're engaging with me in a meaningful way. So that flexibility around methodology, we can't decide that actually. That needs to be something that we work with the community about what's appropriate. And that, the relationship is first. That's key. So in Te Māori, Whakawhanaungatanga is a, a key grounding concept. And that um, kind of leads in this work. If you're not building the connections and building the trust and the relationships, then nothing's going to happen. And in fact, you may be doing more damage. So the connection and trust building over data gathering or, or process. So in Waitamata, um, we held, we did have protocols, we did a um, sort of little re- interview sort of sheet, but we held those things really, really loosely, and it was really important for the team going out and doing the work that they didn't have to conduct an interview. That was sort of their first question, do we have to do interviews? Because we've got this idea of how formal they are, and the idea that those engagements would go where they needed to go, and maybe you just needed to have a coffee first, or a coffee for six months before you would get to a conversation um, that may be connected to the work. You needed to build up those um, connections. So for healthy families, this thing about safe communities, keeping my community safe, is paramount. So they're communities that may well have experienced a lot of past trauma, and the last thing that anybody in that community wants to do is invite in something that's going to be unproductive or doesn't see the strengths in that community and build on them. So keeping the community safe may mean going in areas actually that aren't the ones that you're looking for, but they're the ones that that, that create a safe space that you can experience. What is this design research thing? What are these design tools? Create a safe space to test some stuff out and actually build some trust and confidence with the community about how they feel about that. And maybe change them, maybe appropriate the methodology so that it feels more comfortable or it comes from that place. So it's a shift then from being guided by research protocols and interviews focused on learning and data gathering to being flexible and completely guided by the context to build trust and connections. So similarly, why we engage, and you'll be starting to see some of the themes coming through here. Um, Yes, we want to understand what's going on for people. That, I was sort of running out of ideas for pictures at this point, so this is my crack at some personas and like some how might we's and you know that bit where you've got all your post-it notes and you're doing your insights and stuff. All that's really important. We absolutely want to know what's going on for people. What's hurting? What, what do they celebrate? What is the context? What are the big reframe shifts that we can really use to rethink differently how stuff might work? What are the insights that we've gathered? Those are all really important. But it's not just about data gathering and learning. There's also some other things that are really important that we're trying to achieve through this process if we're genuinely trying to engage in how we might be supporting some different kinds of things to go on. One of those is the connection. So building those connections and building the trust creates or anchors the potential for change. So the connections are really important. Um, so, for example, in the, in the Wellbeing and Waitamata project, um, we had the choice. We could do more interviews or more conversations, collect more data if we brought more external people in, like we could sort of get a little hit team to come in and help us boost up our numbers so that we could talk to more people. And we talked that through as a team and made the decision that that wasn't what we wanted to do because the most important thing was those um, coordinators that lived in those communities built new networks with new kinds of people that they didn't have connections with before through the process. So they wanted to support primary prevention. They already had really good networks 
with people who deal with crisis intervention and other kinds of family violence. They didn't necessarily have the networks with the sports clubs, the libraries, the stuff where all the primary great strong stuff was happening at the front end. So the, the interviews or the conversations were about building those connections as much as learning about what was going on there. So we made the decision as a team that the coordinators had to be in each of those interviews, otherwise we'd lost that opportunity to connect the future with the now. The second one is we can see change, so we can actually start to see action already. And again, on the Waitamata Wellbeing Project, we saw examples of this. And... What we were doing, yes, we were going in and we were learning about what was going on in people's lives, what was important, what were their values, what were they doing on a daily basis, but we were also sharing with them some things about primary prevention and the things that you can do in your community to build up the strengths in your community. So we were sharing the knowledge that we had from the evidence base. And we were really struck by the outcome of that. So what happened was people saw the things they were already doing, that they were motivated to do, directly connected to a positive outcome that would reduce violence. There was evidence in front of them that said, when you do that thing that you've been doing, it's awesome and it will make a difference. And that was really motivating and inspiring for people. They were like, that's cool, because family violence is like climate change. You're like, how can I, how can I stop this? This is so complicated, how can I make a difference? And these things were saying, yes, what you're doing is making a difference, and here's some more things that you can do. And that was really motivating and inspiring for people. Once we sort of observed that, we went back and started asking people, hey, what, what have you done differently since we had that conversation with you? And many of them had already started to take new actions. So they had gone and met their neighbours, or they were running the groups that they'd been running differently, or they'd started another group. So they were already starting to build their capability for primary prevention at the community level. As a result, we were just still in the discovery process. We'd only just started having conversations with people. So that's seeding of actual action already. The third thing is around benefit. And this is quite complex, there's lots of layers to this, but how is it that the people that are involved in this process are benefiting from being involved? That might be some straight stuff like just giving them koha or um, you know, some vouchers or money or whatever it is to acknowledge their, their value. We're getting paid to be there, so they also should be being, being paid for their time. But it also might be, what are they gaining out of this? What knowledge, what capability are they building? Are they being affirmed in the work they've been doing? So how are we making sure that it's a positive experience to be involved? Are they building connections through the workshops? There's a bunch of other ways that we can be building people's capacities. But there's also, if we've got the opportunity to share resources and information with people, we should. And this is a bit of one of the examples of where there's kind of a bit of, mm-mm, is this right? Should I be intervening here? So an example would be you're running a session about um, unemployment for young people and as you're having that conversation you realise they've got no awareness whatsoever of the seven different services available to them down the road that would probably be quite useful. Do you say anything? Not in the middle of the conversation, but yes, afterwards you've, I believe we've got an obligation to connect them to those services. But we have to be... That's, that's, it's difficult getting that stuff right and that's not a decision to make on your own and you need to be surrounded by the team and discussing through what is the point at which we might be making those connections, how do we do that well. So those things are not straightforward and we don't want to get into kind of amateur social worker hour or amateur psychology hour where we think we're helping and we're being therapists. We don't want to blur any of those boundaries that we've been really careful to maintain about what our role is. But we also don't want to walk away from situations where we could have actually made connections for people across the system that would have helped. So we need to just examine that uh, and interrogate our role a little bit more. So a shift from learning about needs, context and experiences, so that we can inform what's going to happen in the future, 
to actually building the conditions for the future now, seeding change and creating benefit, whatever that may look like in that context. Okay, so the last one, what does success look like in these contexts? All the great stuff already, yes, insights and learnings and new knowledge and new framing, super excited about all that, but also need to be building capability in the system to support the kinds of change that we're trying to enact and enable. So some of these shifts are big shifts. They're new ways of working and they're ways that make people feel really, really vulnerable. We're quite attached to the status quo. It feels good. We know how to do our job and we know what we're doing. But we're talking about radically changing things. How do we build people's capability to support different ways of working, different ways of thinking? As it turns out, the design research process, if you involve people and they're doing the research themselves, they're doing the insights analysis, they're running the prototyping sessions, that's the teams, but also community members coming in and taking a lead role. It's a really effective experiential learning or training program for people to build critical skills, to start questioning their assumptions. All of a sudden, they're like, oh, this whole thing about saying I don't know to questions is awesome. I felt my whole life I needed to have the answer, and now I realise I don't. I can do inquiry. I feel more confident about um, critiquing things and pulling things apart. So it actually builds capacity and capability for the types of work and the ways of working that are absolutely necessary to get any of the changes that we're talking about. So an example in the Waitamata project would be, yes, the teams built up some new skills, so that they found um, some useful skill building personally out of it in terms of running design sessions and being more um, curious and testing assumptions and things like that. But one of the key things for them was actually, or for us, was how do we work together across central government, local government and place base? How do we even do a collaboration like that? And so the skill of actually collaborating, which is something, again, that's critical to getting any of the kind of shifts we're talking about, um, was actually a capability that was built through the project. It was a key outcome for that team. Not just the research output, the data, the insights. What was left inside the community and the people at the capacity level that would mean they could sustain this way of working. So I feel like, as well as really wonderful active um, reports and action insights and things like that, we're also needing to leave a trail of confidence and inquiry after us for people to keep using that um, type and way of thinking. So becomes, whoops, really haven't got my technique right on this stuff. Um, creating insights and framing up new possibilities, again to inform, becomes actually building capability, building the confidence, building social capital and momentum. So there's a whole lot of non-tangible outcomes that can come through the design research process in addition to those learnings. Am I okay for time? Because yes. Steve just took some such big long sentences. That <laughs> cool. So proposing then design research um, in terms of social change offers all these awesome things, right? It offers the stuff that we know and we love about design. But it also offers these things too, if we kind of lean into that change space, opportunities to build capacity, to create connections, to bring the change forward. I don't want to sound like an evangelist, I'm just sharing some thoughts here, I don't want to get too carried away. But the potential to lean into the space, and I'm always a bit sceptical about that term, leaning in, but that's actually what it feels like. When you're in the room and you're making decisions with the team about what's the most important action here, we have to get to that change. If we're focused on a change outcome, what's the most important action? What should we lean towards? Because maybe we should get more data, but maybe we should just go with the energy that we've got right now. That's what it feels like, is leaning into those. What does it mean for us, though, if design is... Remit is extending. What about the remit of designers? What, what questions do we need to ask as practitioners about how we work and what our limitations are? 
this is a terrible title, like the basics, but I just couldn't come up with anything else. But the stuff that sort of seems reasonably sensible, it's good to know it's not a nine-to-five thing. This bleeds all the way through. We, our professional box of selves isn't good enough to bring to this work. You have to bring your whole self, just like the community do. So it's not a nine-to-five kind of concept. We have to have, we have to be really comfortable with flexibility, being responsive, being able to move. We have to focus on relationships, not just people, not people-centred, but relationship-centred. What connections are being built or not being built that will be critical to whether or not things actually happen or not, to whether someone says yes to something, to trying something different. Like I said, this collective decision-making process, the whole team, whoever's involved, needs to be making those decisions about, is this the right thing to do? Should we be intervening here? Does this feel okay? How many people? Why these people and not these people? That's not an internal design methodology conversation, it's a completely collective, transparent, ongoing conversation about what's the right action to take today, given what we know right now. I don't know what the weird little icon at the bottom is, I've forgotten why I drew that, but acknowledging our limitations. Knowing that actually we're completely imperfect, we've got lots of blind spots, and we have to surround ourselves with other practitioners and people with heaps of experience in different fields and backgrounds that can help fill those blind spots and work collectively. Whether it be social workers, psychologists, whatever it is that you need around you, health professionals, public health professionals, and you guys are drawing on this stuff together. So it's not an individual pursuit by any means. So those are some of the sort of basics. Two things I just want to draw attention to for a bit deeper. One is this idea of rigor and robustness. So I think we get really caught up in, is the data rigorous? Is it robust? Is it valid? And often we associate that with numbers. Numbers are important, and we need to understand the difference between qualitative approaches, quantitative approaches, what makes things in certain paradigms valid and what doesn't. Those things are important to have our heads around. But rigor is completely contextual. It depends what it is that you're trying to achieve and what the question and the answer is. So we need to build our capacity around understanding that and interrogating that and look beyond, I think, a lot of the assumptions that I've, I've experienced personally are unstated about what we think brings rigour. We haven't sort of exposed that stuff in our dialogue. And a lot of it comes from a sort of paradis, sorry, positivist, rational paradigm. And there's a bunch of other places we can be looking in terms of action research, participatory design, and in particular, um, indigenous wisdoms and methodologies that have whole different value systems about what rigour is. So a lot of the work in New Zealand, under the Treaty of Waitangi, reciprocity partnership are the frameworks that hold you to rigour and tell you whether or not you're doing the right thing or not. That's the criteria against which you assess yourself, not necessarily a scientific um, criteria or validity. So I think we need to have more conversations about this stuff as a field. What beliefs do we hold about knowledge and how it's created? We have to really engage with that. I was going to put the word epistemology up in there, but that just seemed to mean. <laughs> um, so that's the first one. The second one, and I'm, I'm, I'm a wrap-up, Donna, um, is to be really clear with this thing that every engagement is an intervention. There is no such thing as a neutral conversation. We were just learning. We just went in for a chat. We were objective. That's not true. There's no such thing. Conversation is action, and every time we have a conversation, something's changing. People are different from when they started, so we need to really engage with that as well. What responsibility does that bring, and how can we utilise that? We've got such precious opportunities to connect with people. Working with the community, people are really busy, like getting someone in to have a conversation. Oh, my God, that's amazing. How to use it to its absolute maximum, how to make sure you're getting the greatest benefit for them and for you and for all of us out of these opportunities to engage. But it also means you have to hold that responsibility very carefully. We, like I said, we don't want to start getting confused and think that we're doing social work and stuff. We need to really understand what is it that our responsibility is if we're seeing these as interventions. 
So, even if this is not your bag, um, all of us are doing something to do with change, right? Because that's why you're doing the research, that's why you're doing the work, because we're trying to shift from what something is now. So here are some questions that I think are still relevant to ask yourself, no matter where you're working on, that just helps you lean into that change space, bring change to now. The first one is to reflect, after you've done some of that work, some of that, those conversations, has any change already been activated? Go back and see. What came as a result of you raising those questions with people as a result of those conversations? Start putting some learning loops in. Are people already doing things differently as a result of the conversations? Has action already started to occur? Are champions emerging? Are the people taking it up themselves and starting to do stuff? Because that's key to getting any kind of change through. Have we built the relationships that are necessary to create conditions for change? So as stuff comes back, have we built that trust? Have we built that openness? Have we anchored stuff in? And have we started to build the capability and confidence that is needed for shifting from status quo that will allow people to bridge into a different way of working? And if not, what might we try and do differently to lean into those kinds of change outcomes? Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Design Research 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.